If you express a lot of feminine qualities at work, people will often like you a lot and they will never promote you or give you any serious responsibility. If you present in a traditionally masculine way at work, like a leader and independent and don't care too much whatever people think and speak up for yourself and take credit for things, people will not like you. You're listening to the Rain Insights Podcast, a room where great ideas are shared and the world's leading business and risk management experts convene. In today's podcast, David Lawrence speaks to Stacey Vanek-Smith, a business and economics reporter and co-host of NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money. Stacey Vanek-Smith is also the author of Machiavelli for Women, a book which turns Machiavelli's political manifesto The Prince on His Head and seeks to inspire women to take and maintain power at work. Stacy, thank you so much. It, it truly is a privilege and honor to be able to speak with you. And I do have to say, I am a uh, first-time caller to you, but a long-time listener between Planet Money, Marketplace. Uh, truly, congratulations on your book. Um, thank you. And whenever I see that somebody has um, had an idea that's uh, outside the box, someone is thinking differently, which I... I, I have observed uh, you do and obviously you know this book reflects that uh, I've reduced uh, four W's uh, to the essential questions around new ideas which is what are you doing why are you doing it with whom are you doing it and why now and having listened to some of the other interviews of you related to the book I've he- I've heard the answers to those questions and I think Maybe it's a starting point. Um, if we could begin there, uh, I think that would be of great value uh, to the audience. So, uh, sort of, what did you do, and why did you do it, and with whom? Uh, because you gained access to some incredible people, and why did you feel now was the time to do something like this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like the four W's. It takes me back to my to my reporting roots. So, first of all, the what. What I did was I, I wrote a book that I felt like I wanted to read. And I should clarify that. So I've been covering uh, business and economics for almost 20 years. Um, and, you know, when you're on a beat that long, there are certain stories that come up again and again. Uh, the gender pay gap. When you are a woman covering business, you will do a gender pay gap story every year. <laughs> That's just something that happens. I was doing up, you know, yet another iteration of the story and the pay gap. And I was talking to this uh, economist, this really brilliant woman named Francine Blau, who's done all kinds of deep research into the gender pay gap, the race pay gap, why it exists, all of this. And she said, well, you know, these numbers haven't changed in 20 years. And for some reason that I could not get that out of my head because that was longer than my whole career. I'd seen so much transformation in the economy, so much change, so much growth, so many amazing things happen in the economy, entrepreneurs, just incredible innovation, that the fact this had been stuck seemed almost impossible to me. It seemed almost impossible that it would be stuck. You know, that anything in our economy would be stuck. How can you have so much innovation and change and something like salaries not moving. It, it just w- was so mind-blowing to me. And I, I read, I also like read a lot of kind of economic type papers for my job. And there are a lot of papers and research on this topic. But 
all of, you know, the, a lot of them would look at these issues, but what they would always say at the end, because, you know, there's a little sort of solution section to them usually, it was always geared toward policymakers or people running companies. And that is great. I mean, that is how one of the ma- easiest ways to make big change is policy. Or, you know, if you're running a company with a thousand workers, you can change a lot of people's lives pretty fast. But I was like, well, what if you're just you, you know, I mean, it's great if, if policy changes, it's great if companies, you know, do the right thing. But what if it's just you and you're trying to get yourself paid? And then when I was looking at a lot of advice books, because I am a homework person, <laughs> this may surprise you. <laughs> I have always been very good at homework. Um, I started looking at a lot of these advice books geared toward women and, and just some of the advice books, period, for negotiating and things like that, because in my opinion, that's probably the main way to get a raise. If it's just you, if you're not running it, you know, if it's not policymakers or companies and the advice to women, I honestly found a lot of it really cringy for lack of a better word. It was very kind of like you go girl and all this, but, but more than that, a lot of it just didn't seem to be quite grounded in reality. You know, it was kind of like you walk into your boss's office and you tell him he needs to pay you more. And I was like, well, yes, it's not like I've never had that fantasy in my head, like probably millions of times, but I don't think that works that well. And then when I read kind of the, you know, the more general negotiating books, and there's some really great ones, a lot of those techniques I tried and then they didn't work. So it was a combination of all these different things. And I was like, I want a book that looks seriously at the gender pay gap and the gender promotion gap. Because I actually think that's a little squishier to talk about, but it's probably more important than the pay gap. Um, I wanted a, a book that would look seriously at that, look at some of the numbers and the data and the research, but then also have some advice. And I didn't want to give any advice that wasn't based in research. I was like, what actually works? And specifically what works for women, for marginalized workers, like what actually can we actually do that will work um, in the world that we're living in now with all the issues, all the good parts and the bad parts that it has. So that is the the what. And I guess also a little bit the why. Um, and and actually the why now, nothing had moved. So Yeah, why now? Nothing had moved. That's exactly right. Um, and right now, especially post-pandemic in our strange world that we're in now, I do think this is a really powerful moment for for all workers. I mean, I feel like after COVID, there's like the flexible work and like workers kind of leaving the workforce now. I feel like employers employees have more power right now than they've ever had, than I've ever seen at any point in my career ever. And I feel like also there's an openness from employers that I've never seen before. I think a lot of it was like everyone had to kind of rethink things during the pandemic, like how you know, rethink systems open up to different possibilities. So I think there's an openness from companies, a lot of power that workers have. So now I think is a really powerful moment for change. I really do. What's interesting, Machiavelli uh, wrote The Prince when he was in exile. You were working remotely during COVID. And um, if I were to open up my laptop and you were to see 
some of the notes I've been making on the various topics, you'd probably uh, be a little bit worried that uh, this is a Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski uh, manifesto that I'm putting together. <laughs> but there is there is something about events that cause us to stop and think, put us on pause. I used to joke uh, during my days at Goldman, uh, I should never go away on vacation. It takes me, you know, three days to decompress. Um, I start to enjoy myself. I start to question what the heck I'm doing with my life and, <laughs> and what's going on back there. And then, of course, at the end of the vacation, I'm catching up. Um, so I, I, I'm curious why Machiavelli and what, you, what drew you to the prince, which... I'm sure in college you read it, I read it, it's almost required reading in many fields of uh, study. And what were the lessons or advice that sort of brought your rereading, and, and I've heard you say you, you've reread it close to 100 times, yeah. that sort of distilled the ideas that there were lessons here that were applicable to the workplace and applicable to women and applicable to the opportunity or the potential for closing what I'll refer to as, I'll call it the equality gap, so that opportunities within companies, you can talk about money, you can talk about job positions, you could talk about uh, the ability to pursue what you're actually interested in that a company is doing. But what kind of distilled this for you? The why Machiavelli question is a really good one because Machiavelli actually came very late uh, for me. So I had this this idea, all these things were kind of knocking around in my head. Um, and I was talking to um, my editor and I was telling her all of these things, you know, and I was like, I was like, I just, I couldn't square it. You know, I was like, I just don't understand um, salary, you know, I, I, I was like, you know, companies are getting wealthier. Women are getting degrees in higher and higher numbers every year. Women are breaking into all these new fields in greater numbers every year. I don't understand how the salary hasn't moved. It just doesn't make any sense. And my editor threw off this line. She was like, well, it's almost like women need Machiavelli. And that really... I don't know why, but that totally stopped me in my tracks. You're totally right. I read The Prince in college, and I hated it when I read it. I was, you know, listen, I work in public radio, right? Like, the the, the killer instinct is just like, I mean, actually, there is quite a killer instinct in public radio. But it's, you know, I was just like, I was very idealistic when, at the time that I read it. And I was like, this is so basic. You know, it's like how to seize power, how to conquer people, how to bend them to your will. And I just had no interest in any of that. Uh, I hated the book. I think I didn't entirely read it because I hated it so much. I was just like, oh, I've got the gist of this guy. It's like super capitalist. I had no interest. But for some reason when my editor said that, it sparked something in me. And I, I just ordered the book on my phone. Like, as we were talking, I just ordered a copy of The Prince. And it's very short. It's like 40, 50 pages. You can read it in a sitting. And so I read it. I went to a, a cafe. This was before the pandemic. And I, I read it cover to cover. And by the end of the book, I, not even the end, the beginning of the book, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. 
this is the reason it it helped me square this thing I couldn't square, which was how come women are making all these changes, all these all this data is changing. You know, there are more women than men in law school. I think almost as many women as men in medical school. I think the numbers for business school are getting really close to parity. Just like this isn't making any sense. And what Machiavelli said in the very, very beginning of his book is there are two kinds of princes. There's the inheriting prince and there's the conquering prince. He's like, inheriting prince, things are very easy. Everyone's just kind of like, oh, that guy, right? You know, it's like you're Prince William, right? It's like, you're just like, oh, well, yeah, you know, he's a Windsor. That's what they do. They rule. Things are very easy for them. And in Machiavelli's opinion, you really have to mess up to lose power if you're an inheriting prince. But if you're a conquering prince, it's really different. Um, he said, you know, for a conquering prince, difficulties abound. Everybody's asking all these questions. Like, first of all, if you're a conquering prince, you probably had to make a lot of people pretty mad to get into power, right? A lot of destruction ha- probably happened. Also, though... Everyone's kind of questioning, like, why should we be doing what this guy says? Who's this guy to be telling us what to do? I mean, imagine if another person tried to become the king of England right now. It would be really hard. You know, everyone's asking questions like, well, why that guy and not me? And why should I do what this guy says? Why should I pay taxes to him? I don't understand. And then he said, and I was like, that's the ticket. You know, women are the conquering prince. We are in all the workplaces and all the fields, all those things, but we're new to this kind of power, relatively speaking, and everybody's asking questions. And there's pushback that the conquering princes are getting that the inheriting princes are not getting. And that, to me, I was like, it helped explain at least the gap. So that's a great point because um, I found the title of the book, in some respects, was... Uh, a little misleading because a a good portion, if not the majority portion, of your book was focused on the insights that you were able to glean by, I'll use your term, doing your homework and speaking to other people about their experiences, what worked, what didn't work, and getting their advice. And sort of, if, if you could expand upon that. You decided, okay, you read, reread The Prince. There's certain lessons about power and politics and how to gain power, how to sustain power, how to leverage power, etc. But you didn't stop there. But basically you said, okay, I have this, uh, if I can use this term, this, um, basically I have a primer book here in some respects, a seminal piece about power, how to acquire it, achieve it, how it gets used, how it gets leveraged. But there were certain questions you wanted to answer. And so you went outside that book to talk to certain people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of think Machiavelli was more of like an intellectual jumping off point. But the practical advice was it had to be different, right? I mean, first of all, you know, people actually amusingly have not really changed at all since Machiavelli wrote The Prince 500 years ago. But also this is a very specific issue. Um, so I had to look. I, so I talked to, um, there's some really, really wonderful research being done. Um, Joan Williams has written a great book called What's well, Work for Women at Work. I, Dr. Cecilia Ridgway has done really amazing work on, on gender. So I, I spoke with them. And I also wanted to get 
anecdotal evidence from or an anecdotal stories of how to succeed from women who had actually done it. The commitment I made, and I think sort of my my homage to Machiavelli was to to try to be totally honest about what the research found, because there are lots of really fascinating studies and some of the conclusions are not what I wanted them to be. Um, but some of, but, but I, w- I just was committed to telling the truth that I found and just at least giving people that option. So people weren't getting like, wouldn't it be amazing if you could walk into your boss's office and demand a raise? But things like, well, studies show that if you smile more as a female, you are more likely to get that raise you're asking for. That is a little stomach turning for me, but, you know, it works. And at least that's something that people can know. Does it mean you have to smile? No, it absolutely doesn't. You can make the choice. I have a lot of respect for someone who refuses to do that. But I wanted to give people the, the real story of what worked. And, and I was able to talk to some really amazing women that I admired so much, including Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, um, about, she wasn't Treasury Secretary at the time I spoke with her. Um, she was between jobs, uh, <laughs> um, so to speak, but I was able to talk to Janet Yellen. I was able to talk to Sally Krawcheck, who was a Wall Street executive for years and has her own um, has her own investment firm now, and Adele Lim, who is the screenwriter for Crazy Rich Asians, who actually turned down the sequel because the salary she was offered was not equal to what her male co-writer was getting offered, and all kinds of women who had made decisions, difficult decisions and difficult circumstances that had sort of helped them get to a place of great success or a, a place that I thought was you know, kind of like a conquering prince, so to speak. And I I tried to present that as clearly and factually as I could, just so that people reading it would have some, some real advice and some real research on what is going on, what they can do, the way around some of these kind of catch 22s that can crop up when you are a woman trying to be in a leadership position. So the primer, um, what women can do. And I want to actually, uh, one of the most fascinating areas that I found was the, the process of negotiating and negotiating for yourself and trying to survive and to overcome people's inherent reluctance to negotiate on their own behalf. And I want to get into that in a minute. But um, I, I want to maybe take a slight detour with you first, Stacy, because maybe there's there's a companion book here which is, while this Machiavelli for women, there's a book that needs to be written. And I, I don't say this in a, uh, in a way to play up to the issue, but I've noticed this, that there actually needs to be a book written for men about the value of women and how many women will think, problem solve, etc., and my good fortune has been to work with uh, some extraordinarily talented women from all walks of life. Uh, I had a career in the government, and so the issue of salary, which is a big issue inside corporations, and parity and equity, people, you know, they, they come in at certain levels, they're federal guidelines, and, and, and the disparity between the person who's at 
top of the Justice Department and somebody who's in a executive or management position and then the line assistants is really, you know, shekels, if I can use that term. It's not much. So that gets taken off the board and I've studied what that can do for an environment, number one. Number two is is the fact that women I've had a chance to work with, whether they were trial lawyers, prosecutors, um, some of the most talented people in the area of risk management. Um, I'm very fortunate to work with the smartest people I know in cybersecurity are women. They come out of three-letter agencies. They are thoughtful. They want to share what they know. They think about such issues as not overreacting to problems, how to simplify things. They have incredible communication skills, etc., all of which might be lost in the context of a broader corporation. But, you know, my exposure to them and working with them with clients, uh, they think about things, they communicate things in ways, and I will say this, that are far better than men. I have seen this time and time again. And, you know, there are differences. You see this in preschools. I'm fortunate, you know, I, I have both a son and daughter. They're, they're young adults now. But I, I have two very young grandchildren. They, they're two boys. And I will say this to you. It, you go into a preschool, you go into kindergarten, first grade context. The young girls are more advanced. They're more social. I like to say they play chess and the boys are playing checkers. And, and I don't think enough, one of the most brilliant individuals, and whenever she speaks, I'm rushing to hear her about the financial markets in the world, is Abby Joseph Cohn. You know, I was fortunate enough to know her at Goldman Sachs, incredibly well-respected, uh, didn't change her lifestyle throughout her success in finance, took the shuttle bus from Queens, was married to, uh, for many years, to a guy who worked with the New York Police Department, whom I also knew, and just always had a very, very calm way of thinking about things and had a different perspective. One of the things that worries me a little bit is that I have always benefited. I've had mentors who, women, I was raised by essentially a single mom who was an incredible woman. My youngest sister, I refer to her as my baby sister. She's 12 years younger, 11 years younger. I acknowledge she's the smartest and the best person in the family, the most accomplished, has done amazing things in her life in the medical profession. I believe there is a benefit. And that's why I think the problem is, quite frankly, not appreciating what women bring to the table under ordinary circumstances and not making that happen. And the fact that you have to write a book and possibly draw out the lessons from Machiavelli that women might need just to to make sure their ideas are heard, their perspectives are shared, their accomplishments are acknowledged, etc. That's what's troubling me a, a great deal. I don't know if that makes sense to you because I worry that what many women innately bring to the table, and you see this, you know, in academia, how they excel, somehow gets suppressed. And the notion that they need to change or 
in order to have their ideas heard and, and, and to rise to a natural level is rather bothersome to me, if that makes any sense. Yes, yes, that absolutely makes sense. Um, a couple things on that. So first, I mean, you're absolutely right. One of the one of the real losses and the real problems with the way things are slash have been. I mean, there's enormous change that's happened, and I don't mean to dismiss that. There's been enormous change and enormous progress, but not only with women, but other marginalized workers, people of color, LGBTQ workers, is that their ideas do tend to get looked over and dismissed, and we're losing all that innovation, those other perspectives. I mean, there's great value there. Now, the other side of that is it can make, you know, that kind of diversity and inclusion is a challenge too. Like workplaces have to change. That's not easy. You know, you have a way of doing stuff that works and all of a sudden you're taking in all this new feedback. You're taking all these new suggestions. I do think that it would make our economy much stronger. I mean, just if you look at the problems that often get quote unquote solved by startups, like a lot of the problems that get addressed are problems of a certain socioeconomic group, a lot of, and because those are the people who can get the funding. Those are people who can get the venture funding and the backers and who have the networks that will get, you know, help get a business off the ground. But a lot of the ideas that really need addressing in this country, that socioeconomic group has no idea about because they haven't lived it. Um, so, Yes, to your point, I think there's enormous amounts of loss when that diversity, those ideas aren't aren't taken into account. Now, the struggle, and I think you were, were pointing at this, and it certainly has come up a lot, is, well, in writing a book like this, is this becoming part of the problem? And I've heard this from women multiple times, where, or not multiple, many, many, many times, where it's like, well, hey, wait a minute, you know, I feel like you're saying like the workplace is, you know, very imperfect and I'm just supposed to play this game. And if I play this game, does that mean that I am leaving maybe the special thing I have to offer, my perspective, my way of doing things at the door? It's like you have to conform if you want to succeed. And am I leaving what I really have to offer on the table if I conform in that way? And I think that is, I mean, that is a question I thought about all the time. And it's true. I mean, I remember one woman was like, I was on a panel about women and work and I could tell she was like, she was very successful in finance, clearly had dealt with a lot of this stuff said, you know, I was so frustrated and angry when I read your book because here we are again, soft power. Like we have to smile. We have to make nice. We have to make our boss not feel bad for underpaying us. We can't be direct. Like, I can't believe you're suggesting this stuff. I can't believe this is still the advice that's being offered. And it was very hard to hear that, of course. You know, I care deeply about these issues. And I do recognize that my approach is is troubling. I mean, tr- some of it troubled me. The, the thing that I kept coming back to was something that uh, Machiavelli said and something that uh, Joan, Joan C. Williams, who's an amazing gender researcher and legal scholar, said. So Machiavelli had this phrase saying, the times are more powerful than our brains. And what I take that to mean is that there are forces at work that 
are very, very powerful. It does not mean we can't deal with them and overcome them, but we have to work with them. Pretending like they're not there is, is probably not going to yield success. The other thing was, I was talking to Joan C. Williams. One of the things she recommends, women often find themselves in this double bind where if you express a lot of feminine qualities at work, people will often like you a lot and think the world of you, and they will never promote you or give you any serious responsibility. If you present in a, in a more sort of traditionally masculine way at work, like a bit leader and independent and don't care too much whatever the people think and speak up for yourself and take credit for things, people will not like you. You might get some promotions, but in the end, there will be this feeling that like, I don't know, I don't like that woman. We see this a lot with female politicians. So this, we were talking about this, this what is known sometimes in sociology as the double bind. And it's one of the main reasons that um, social scientists have identified for why women don't get promoted, things like that. So one of the things she recommended was if you, she's like, I present with a lot of like masculine energy at work. So I started wearing dresses more. And of course, I was fascinated by this. She, I guess she had a young daughter at the time and her daughter was obsessed with dresses. So she's like, I started wearing dresses and let me tell you, things got way better for me at work. I was like, that's really sort of delightful that you're saying that. But like, that's also like really troubling advice. Like wear a dress? Like you want to get a raise, wear a dress? And she was like, no, it is. She's like, listen, I wrote a book called What Works for Women at Work, not What Should Work for Women at Work. Like, this is the world we're in. She's like, do I think that it's better to sort of live on principle at the cost of not rising through the ranks in a workplace or getting paid a lot less? She's like, no, I don't agree with that. I think you have to see things as they are and work with them. So I thought about that a lot too. Um, I did always try to find solutions that, that involved the least amount of that kind of compromise But nonetheless, that kind of compromise is a lot of what the book is about. I struggled mightily with it, but it is part of why Machiavelli is at the heart of this book. It's like, okay, what are the reactions you're likely to get if you ask for more money? Studies show people have a really adverse reaction often when women ask for more money, sort of a who does she think she is? People automatically consider you less desirable to work with. You are less likely to get a raise if you ask for one than you would if you were a man, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, okay, so how do you get a raise in this environment, taking all these things into account? And so that is the approach that I took. But it's such a good question because it's the part that's the hardest to talk about. And it's the part that I struggled with the most in writing the book. And it's the part that... I felt like was the heart of the book also. The takeaway, look, um, um, the famous Japanese iconic film Rashomon, um, where different people witness the same event and can walk away with very different perceptions and conclusions, and they're all plausible. And it's a funny thing, and maybe because I'm a, a male, maybe because of the good fortune I've had to... Um, be mothered and to have two remarkable sisters and, and a remarkable daughter and the women I got to work with. I actually, in reading the book and skimming parts, and I'm going to go back to it, but listening to you be interviewed, I actually took your book as as a, um, a call to, we'll call it, the people, the deciders within organizations. Because there is nothing sadder than than a situation where people cannot be themselves and and you know and that they have to go to 
you know, either the prince and uh, or you know other women, you know, to, I have to, you know, wear a dress or whatever. That they have to do things that they are sort of not part of their natural fabric in order to be recognized and to succeed. Now, if you're in some professions, and by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna digress once more, Stacy. I actually think that you're writing this book was the ultimate Machiavellian event. Really? Tell me. Yes, I will tell you why. <laughs> I will tell you why. Because in writing it, it was in many respects, um, you're dropping a giant FU bomb to anyone who would try to F with you in the future. Oh. That you are, look at what I did on my own, okay? in my own time, during COVID, here are the people I was able to reach, here are the people I was able to speak, here are the lessons I learned along the way. Do you really want to negotiate with me? (laughs) Do you really want to get in the room with me? Really? And by the way, uh, you know, we'll talk, but if, if we can't come to an accommodation, I have options, okay? I'm out of here. Well, I like that take on the book for sure. And... That's one take, but I also, this is a message as much to the designers, and I'll say to men, because, you know, the vast majority of um, executives and corporations and, and you know, even agency heads within the government um, are men. Oh, yes. This is as much, how should I say, uh, a, a book that should be saying to them, don't make your human capital have to figure this out in order for them to contribute to your organization to be have their talents recognized their ideas heard in the room etc break down those barriers and I'm dating myself a bit okay no that's super interesting okay and I'm going to tell you a story when I was at Goldman you know we're thinking about going to certain markets I'll even mention the market it was Russia uh, I reached out to some of my government contacts. And I said, obviously, in a non-confidential uh, basis, and it was known we were putting our toe back in the waters in Russia. I said, I would really appreciate a briefing by some of your smartest uh, people in the intel community about what's happening in Russia now and who's emerging and what people arguably you can deal with and who to stay yeah, away from, yeah. et cetera. Like, okay? What does this place really look like? Yeah. Right. Because the government's been studying this for a long time and let's not Cold benefit. War, I know. <laughs> I the benefit, I, they allowed me to do homework at Goldman and, and there was a model for as fully informed decision making as possible. Smart, right? All There's right. so much money at stake, you know? Okay. So they send up their people from Washington. There, there are uh, five men and, and a woman. And the men are doing the presentation, they're answering the questions, et cetera. You know, we're about an hour plus into the session, I asked a question. And uh, the person who was organized said, well, actually, so-and-so would be in the best position. It's a good question, David. She's been focusing on those two people in particular and uh, knows a lot. I will tell you, within three minutes of her speaking, I knew who the smartest person was in the room and whom I wanted to align with. Five guys, one woman, Mm. she's not speaking, (laughs) they're presenting, hour and 15 minutes into this. Fortunately, I asked that question, but it was so clear. And I say this to you because as I read your book and I've listened to your interviews, 
I thought this was actually a message that was intended to reinforce my thinking and people who are in positions of decision, I don't care whether they're men or women, about the barriers that have to be broken down in order to leverage and to take full advantage of and to cultivate and to grow the talent within an organization. Yeah. I love that story because one of the things that that I I thought was going to be a really hard thing to tackle in the book and actually ended up, there was so much research about it, I couldn't believe it, was exactly what you're saying. Like who speaks up in a meeting? Who doesn't? Who gets interrupted? And I was like, oh, there's not going to be anything on this. It's like, it's so hard to get at. It was just like from my own personal observation. And there was an amazing study of the Supreme Court and the uh, justices of the Supreme Court, because it's all on record, right? Everything is logged. And I know this study. This is, uh, you're going to make a great right? point. It's amazing. Uh, it's, it's, it's unforgettable when you read it. But basically, they, they looked at all the Supreme Court logs, and it was about interruption. And as it turned out, the female justices were interrupted by the male justices way more, three times more, I think it was, than the male justices interrupted other male justices. But what was truly striking was there's a rule that the lawyers are not supposed to interrupt the justices, which A, makes sense, and B, just seems smart because the if you're arguing a case before the Supreme Court, you want the justice to like you, and if you're interrupting them, they're probably going to like you less. You know, I mean, it just seems like... Uh, but the lawyers, even though it wasn't it wasn't permitted, would interrupt the female justices constantly. I mean, it was amazing. And they, these transcripts, they had like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, especially there was like some really delightful examples. But it just, it really did kind of reinforce this feeling, this kind of gut feeling I had that, you know, it seems like, you know, who speaks up in a meeting as you say, it is not necessarily the person who knows the most. It is not necessarily the person who has the most ideas. Meetings are a little, you know, it's like a little power event, right? I mean, who speaks more? I mean, it's, and who who gets to interrupt who? You know, I mean, if the CEO interrupts the intern, that's probably not that big of a deal. If the intern interrupts the CEO, like that would be, that would blow everyone's mind. Like you cannot do that, Right. Um, but the, there are all these hierarchies that play out, and a lot of them, you know, we just don't even know about, right? I mean, the woman may have been less inclined to speak up because of her own experiences coming up. The, the men may have been more inclined to speak up, not because, you know, they may have said, if you ask, I mean, it sounds like when you ask, they said, oh, you should really, this woman is the person that knows all the things. They knew that, and they volunteered that information but she was speaking less. They were speaking more. It's so ingrained in how, how is it okay to express yourself? When is it okay to express yourself? A lot of the issues, and this was one of the things that I, that I really thought about a lot too, a lot of the issues are inside of us as well. You know, I mean, I, how, I mean, how often have I talked myself out of asking for more or speaking up in a meeting or floating an idea? Um, so many times, way more times than I've been shut down by a colleague or a man or whatever, I have shut myself down. And those dynamics, they start to come into play and they reinforce each other. And you're right, the, the loss, if someone doesn't m actively m 
kind of work to undo these things is tremendous. You know, like the ideas that are left on the table, the innovation that gets left behind. I mean, this is how we grow our economy. This is how we become wealthier as as a country, as people, as individuals, as companies, is this. And it's so tricky, right? I mean, people with the best intentions. Um, but that's kind of what is so insidious and interesting about this problem, too. Yeah, and I, I, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. You know, um, as you reread Machiavelli, you know, so little has changed about human behavior, right? So little has changed. And... Uh, or I'll quote the Bible. I think it's the book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> and and I think I think that there is a a challenge, and that's what the book underscored to me, okay? That there is a challenge that we have to be leaders have to be conscious about so the range of human behavior and what can suppress, what can oppress, what can depress people that are within the range of what I'll refer to as whether it's a private sector company, a public sector company, etc. This and this has to be a constant process. You've written about and you've spoken about negotiating and how to, you know, salary. Okay, we have new laws about salary and compensation transparency, so people arguably can look up and see the range for their position when something's posted and stuff. Uh, the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago. Uh, had an article about how companies are struggling to keep up with that transparency law. But as you you have said, policy can help. But I think this your book was a call to individual ownership, um, that people actually have to own this issue. And what is needed to retain talent, attract talent, and make sure that the talent actually is, you know, finding its natural level. Oh, I do. I, I really do think that's true, um, that you just miss so much. You know, I mean, it's it's not only a question of ethics and, and giving people a fair shake, which is, I think, what we all love. I think everybody loves that idea about the American dream. You know, it's a, such a powerful one. Like you can make something extraordinary of your life, no matter what your background is, no matter where you came from, no matter how humble your beginnings, you've got a shot here. And I think no matter what, you know, how much we disagree on everything else, I think most people would say that that, that is what they want to see in the economy and the world around them is that. And, you know, you get in the day-to-day of it and things can change. You know, you get in the politics or individual whatevers of a company and people are human beings. But I do think that is a thing that we... that most people kind of at their core believe. And so how do we, and I, and want, honestly, I do think that that is something that most people want. I mean, things get in the way, but I do think that, and this is, you know, hopefully a way to help get, get there a little bit more easily, or, or at least raise some awareness of the different possibilities to start to make that not, not more real. I do think there is a lot of reality to that in the U.S., but just make it more available. Make that American dream more available. And I, I'd argue, you know, coming out of COVID, it should have been a pause for everyone to think. And uh, the benefit of being in a democracy, there, between books and broadcasts and social media, there are a variety of ways to be a didactic uh, learner in our society and to rethink assumptions. 
coincidentally, uh, out of the New York Post, a story about Twitter's Esther Crawford. I'm not assigning any truth or anything, but it was interesting that it made the business pages of the New York Post. Uh, the story of a woman who, I think she's now a senior executive in charge of product development at Twitter. She became somewhat iconic because she was in the sleeping bag, sleeping on the floor of Twitter, you know, during Musk's oh, yeah. transition. Okay. okay. Anyway, she had the, out. this is my editorial, she had the temerity when she saw Musk uh, at Twitter's offices, at the, at the coffee shop there, to actually approach him and to introduce herself and pitch some ideas. And apparently she was relatively new. She didn't go through her supervisors, whatever. But anyway, Musk saw something in her or in her ideas uh, and, you know, accelerated her career advancement, if I can use that term. Yeah, yeah. And she's now uh, in social media and probably Glassdoor, who knows where, but she's uh, being criticized for being an opportunist. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'm gonna, yes. I'm going to leave that anecdote. I, you never know how much of this truth or not, but the commentary was interesting because, I, you know, Knowing I was going to be speaking to you, if this had been a guy, I wonder. I wonder. Well, yeah. I mean, then it's just like, well, you know, in a situation as nutty as that must have been in, you know, Twitter with like Elon Musk carrying a sink in to work and all this nuttiness. I mean, I was smiling as you were saying the opportunist thing. I think Machiavelli would be like, what's the problem? But you're right. I mean, that is clearly met as a meant as a sort of disparaging thing, right? She's an opportunist. She's so ambitious. Even that word just means something a little different if it's like, oh, you know, Ralph, he's really ambitious versus like, oh, you know, you know, Regina, she's really ambitious. Okay, I'm going to uh, tax uh, Emily, our brilliant uh, editor, with the last thing because you you refer to, uh, I can't remember, was it called Cinderella Complex? or uh, But basically... Oh, yes. Uh, the women who never get to the ball, who are told just to keep doing their tasks and to keep working, and uh, you know, they they don't get to the ball. Uh, I want to give you another uh, storybook uh, metaphor that maybe you can work in when you write the sequel. Yes, which please. is Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. The women who are given all sorts of tasks, and if they come back and complete those tasks, they'll get the promotion only to find out that ignore the man behind the curtain, you ain't going back to Kansas, okay? You killed the witch, you brought back the slippers, and still, you know, the goalposts move. Um, so I, I That's thought... That's true. And in the end, the, the, yeah. the whole trick was just to click your shoes together and go home. All right, well, thank you, uh, first of all, for the conversation, but more importantly, thank you for, um, I think, a terrific book, a great deal of thought. Oh, thank you. Leveraging access to people that people ordinarily can't hear from and doing your homework, as you phrased it. And very, very meaningful. And, uh, you know, maybe one of the benefits of COVID and otherwise, you know, tragic two years is that, you know, people like you think outside the box and start to do things differently. Oh, thank uh, you. Anyway, Stacey, a great privilege and honor. I look forward to hopefully to continued conversations. Absolutely, anytime. Thank you so much for having me. It was it was really fun. Stacey Vanek-Smith is the author of Machiavelli for Women. David Lawrence is the founder of Rain. 
Brain is a global risk intelligence company that delivers risk and security professionals access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our clients. For more information about Rain's risk management solutions, visit rainnetwork.com. That's R A N E network.com. Thank you for listening.